This is episode 21 of the Rebel Matters podcast and today I'm going to share some recordings with you that I made in the West Bank and Palestine this year in August. This year so far I've been in the West Bank twice. The first time was in March where I went out and visited quite a few human rights organisations, local groups, a refugee camp and just met with Palestinians who were working to create a vision and a future for the younger generation out there. One of the main places that I visited when I was out there in March was the Ada refugee camp in Bethlehem. And in particular, I spent St. Patrick's Day at the Lazi Centre, which is a volunteer community centre that serves the over 5,000 people who live at the Ada camp. In August, I went back to the Ada camp to take part in their work camp. And the recording that I have for you today is from that trip where I travelled around the West Bank and met with different people and different organisations again. Actually, when I was out there in March, I also took part in the Palestine Marathon, which goes around Bethlehem. It originally started to highlight the fact that people in the West Bank actually don't have any freedom of movement, really. And they didn't have enough space to do one loop of a marathon. So they had to do several loops of the same course to get a full marathon in. And this year they did two loops. I just did the first one because it was taking part in the half marathon, but it was a class event and extremely warm. I've always wanted to go and visit Palestine as there are a lot of parallels between the Palestinians' cause and what we went through here in Ireland. And growing up in Belfast, we always had a sense of connection with the Palestinian cause. So I wanted to go out there and find out more about their situation for myself. Personally, I found that some of the similarities were staggering between what's going on out there now and what happened in Ireland, especially in the 70s and into the 90s and 2000s as well. To name a few things that are that I found were very, very similar. The way that the Israeli army controlled the movement of the Palestinians and searched people and arrest them at will is exactly what was happening on the streets of Belfast and Derry at the hands of the British army. Their use of the plastic bullets to maim children in Palestine was exactly the same thing that was happening in Ireland and Belfast and Derry as well. And how communities in Palestine have had to take responsibility for their own survival in the same way that Catholics weren't able to rely on the British government for social infrastructures, housing, education, employment and things like youth clubs. They have to look after themselves out there and they were some of the organisations that I visited when I was out there. And the fact that the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is branded as, as a religious war between Muslims and Jews is very similar to the way that the conflict in the North was branded as a Catholic versus Protestant fight. Like the more time I spent in Palestine, it was clear that the conflict out there has got more to do with Israeli greed to control all the natural resources, the land, the opportunities and the money in Palestine more than differences in actual religious beliefs. So there is a common thread between what's going on out in Palestine at the minute and what we went through here in Ireland. But at the same time, there are a lot of differences, which is why I went out there to find out a bit more about it myself. On my second trip out, I brought my Zoom H4 and recorded people's stories, which is what I want to share with you today. I want to share a few of those recordings with you. Quite a few of the recordings that it took can't be used on the podcast because of the possibility of being arrested and sent to jail for speaking out about their experiences as Palestinians is very real out there so I need to protect people's identities and I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Nonetheless, I have a nice lot of recorded material that I didn't really know where to start with when it came back because of the, that, the fact that what's going on out there is so overwhelming and vast that it's hard to pick a starting point. When I did start to edit the audio from the trip, some of the sounds that I recorded really stuck out for me. So I clipped them together to make a short reel of sounds. And it seems to be a good place to start to start explaining some of the places that I visited while I was out there. Have a listen to this clip first and I'll explain a little bit more about what's going on in each segment afterwards.
مرحبا مديرة كيفك؟ Now we are in Palatro Fujikan. That's why we have this meeting. So that is the Palestinian music, and they said they will come us. أي ظاهرة إيجابية بنحاول ندعمها The first part of the clip is of kids at the Ada refugee camp singing as part of their summer camp. And you'll hear the gardening going on in the background. That's the group that I was working with to clear some space for planting crops at the camp in the playground section. The second part of the clip is a burst of gunfire that rang out when I first visited the Balada refugee camp, which is the biggest refugee camp in the West Bank. There are 30,000 people living in that camp and it's so tightly cramped that I could hardly fit through some of the alleyways when getting a tour around the camp. There's 64% unemployment and they get 24 hours of running water every five days at most. So that means that Israelis only turn on the running water for one day out of every five at the very most. And sometimes it's a lot less than that. It's not because there's a shortage of water, but because the Israeli government control all the water and want to make it as difficult as possible for Palestinians to survive on their land. After this, there's a clip of a Jewish busker in Jerusalem that I recorded on my first night in Palestine in August. Parts of Jerusalem are actually like walking around any European city and most of the songs and buskers were in English and there's a lot of pop music to be heard on the streets there. I really like this clip because it's a stark contrast to the music that you'll hear in Muslim areas and the traditional Palestinian music and dance which is called Dagba. The next is a clip of a Palestinian giving a traditional greeting of Marhaba which is their sort of hello over there. Uh, that's a clip of Salah who was with us for the whole duration of my second trip there. The next piece of the clip is actually could be a podcast of its own. It's a recording of farm animals that might not seem like a big thing itself. However, the guy whose house it's at is actually on the other side of the wall. So the Israelis built this wall across this guy's land and all of a sudden said that the part of land that his house was in was now Israel and he would have to beat it and get across to the Palestinian side of the wall. But he refused to move. And between the jigs and the reels, what happened was the Israeli government had to build him a tunnel underneath the wall that they had built just so that he could access Palestine because he's not allowed to go into the Israeli side. So his house is in Israeli side, but he has to go under a tunnel that goes under the wall and up to go into the village that he's from and get a shopping. He can only get one visitor per night. And if he has, if he's looking for, say, a group of people to come in or more than one visitor per day, he has to apply for a permit from the Israeli government. And those animals that are there can be heard are actually in his in his little farm that you have there. Next bit is you'll hear, now we are on the Balada refugee camp and that's why you heard the shooting. When the shooting started to happen, none of the Palestinians we were with even batted an eyelid, which shows how normalised that this kind of thing has become. After this, you'll hear the operation of big traditional looms, which are recorded at the Kafia factory in Hebron. The Kafia is the traditional scarf the Palestinians wear. It's usually black or white or red and white. And Yasser Arafat was famous for wearing his one. And today they're kind of like a political symbol if you see someone wearing one. But functionally, they've been used for generations by farmers to keep themselves warm under the boiling sun and cool in the evenings, as well as keeping the sand out of their faces during windy periods. The next, you'll hear the lads joking about 
the shooting being Palestinian music and that they welcomed us with their music. And then there's the call to prayer, which was recorded in the busy market in Nablus at the, in the West Bank. You can hear a man selling fruit and veg during the call to prayer, which is something that you get used to after a week or two in Palestine because it goes out every five hours, uh, or sorry, five times per day. The second last clip is some single gunshots over the voice of our host at the Balada refugee camp, followed by a repetition of the kids singing at the Ada camp. The contrast of the happiness of the kids, the bustling markets and the cafe factory, how the Palestinians are used to like the extraordinary things like hearing gunshots and that button on the eyelid kind of sums up the whole trip for me. It was just like full of emotion, overwhelming at times and on a human level, so obvious that there's something vast, that there's a vast, vast injustice happening out there and just about all of the major Western countries are at best paying lip service to what's going on in Palestine at the minute. And the fact that there's an Israeli occupation, that the Israeli occupation is fully supported and backed by the United States government. So I think that's a good way to start off our, our podcast about Palestine. Have another wee listen to the clip now that you know what's in it and we'll drive on with the podcast after that. مرحبا مديرة كيفك؟ ناو وي ار ان بلاتر فوجي كام ذاتس واي سو ذاتس ذا فلسطينيان ميوزك اند دي سيد دي ويل كام اس واي ظاهره ايجابيه بنحاول ندعمها One of the reasons it's taken me a while to get the content out that I recorded while I was over in Palestine is I know that whenever I was over there, I was recording it within a certain context. I knew the people who was meeting. I'd been there before. I could see what was going on around me and I've been interested in what's going on in Palestine for a lot of years. And I'm aware that in this podcast format, you might not be starting from the same place. This all might be new stuff. So I want to go back to the basics as much as possible so that we're all starting on the same page. I'll give you a brief review of some of the main historical events that led us to the situation we're in today, as I understand them. But if you want to go deeper, which I recommend you do, I'll add plenty of links to the show notes that you can follow up on in your own time. So here's a few facts about Palestine to get you started. Palestine is an ancient country and it's been home to people of all religions for thousands of years. Jews, Muslims, Christians all lived together and worked together in peace up until relatively recently. Israel was formed in 1948 within the borders of Palestine and since then there hasn't really been any peace. At this stage it's probably a good time to introduce the concept of Zionism into the picture. So the intention of establishing a Jewish state in Palestine can be traced back to the first World Zionist Congress, which happened in 1897, where the leaders of the Zionist movement wanted to create their own country. Zionists are mostly Jewish people that believe that Judaism is a nationality as well as being a a religion, and that Jews deserve their own state in their sort of like ancestral home in Palestine. Now, Jews have lived amongst people of all religions and Palestinians for thousands of years but one of the main problems with Zionism as we see it today is that they want a country solely for Jewish people 
in inverted commas, a Jewish state for a Jewish people, as the saying goes. The Zionist movement eventually got to form their own country in Palestine in 1948 in the aftermath of the Second World War, after Jews all over Europe were heavily persecuted. The formation of Israel as a state was supposed to be a land without a people for a people without a land, but the biggest problem with this whole concept is that the land already had a people, and they are the Palestinians. So Israel was formed in 1948 during a forced Palestinian exodus, which is known to the Palestinians as the Nakba, which literally means disaster or catastrophe. While I was in Palestine in August, I actually interviewed a 100-year-old woman who was expelled from her house during the Nakba and has been living at the Ada refugee camp ever since. People who remember their original village speak with real great sadness about the day they were evicted and when they remember the lives that they used to have in their villages and like imagine going from living in a nice countryside village to being stuck in a refugee camp full of tents as they were back then the people who fled from the Israeli army in 1948 made the made up the first wave of Palestinian refugees the next forced mass exodus was in 1967 during the six-day war and throughout the years to this day, Palestinians are being expelled from their homes and lands. It's estimated there's, that there's about 7.2 million Palestinian refugees worldwide today. More than 4.3 million Palestinian refugees and their descendants who were displaced in 1948 are registered for humanitarian assistance with the United Nations. There's another 1.7 million Palestinian refugees and their descendants who were also displaced in 48 that are not registered with UN and about 355,000 Palestinians and their descendants are internally displaced, which means that they're inside present-day Israel. So essentially, they were expelled from their land and relocated to another area within Israel. The next term to enter the conversation is intifada, which essentially means uprising. The Palestinians have had two major intifadas since the formation of the Israeli state. The first one started in 1987 and lasted until 91. It started in the Jabala refugee camp after an Israeli defence forces truck collided with a civilian car and killed four Palestinians. After that, a protest movement started which involved armed resistance and civil disobedience. Israel sent in 80,000 soldiers and killed 332 Palestinians in the first three months of this uprising. And there was a very high proportion of kids that were killed and civilians. It started then to adopt a policy of might, power and beatings. In inverted commas, it was called like breaking Palestinian Palestinians' bones. So they basically went around literally breaking bones and then started widespread use of plastic bullets after that. In the first year of the first intifada, the Israeli security forces killed 311 Palestinians. 53 of those were under the age of 17. And over the six years, the IDF killed 1,200 Palestinians and between 23,600 and 30,000 Palestinian children actually required medical treatment because of the IDF beatings in the first two years of the Intifada. In 1994, the Oslo Accords were signed by Yasser Arafat on behalf of the Palestinians and Rabin, who was the Israeli Prime Minister at the time. This was a peace agreement that set up what we now have in Palestine and was basically the kind of Palestinian equivalent of the Good Friday Agreement. The main things that came out of the Oslo Accords were the creation of a Palestinian authority, also known as the PA, to be in charge of the Gaza Strip and parts of the West Bank. And then the West Bank was broken up into three different areas, A, B and C, which I'll go through in a minute with you. So Palestine today is basically made up of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. 
the Gaza Strip is a pretty small piece of land. It's un- It's got a 51 kilometer border and there's about 1.8 million Palestinians living in there under severe Israeli blockade. There are very little supplies going in and out. It used, it used to be a thriving fishing um, coastline and that the fishing industry is essentially dead because of the blockade as well. It's basically like an open prison and since March in 2018 the Israeli army have killed over 195 Palestinians and injured 10,000 or more mostly with high powered sniper bullets. It's very hard to get in or out of Gaza and like medical supplies, food and things that are required for just day to day life they're not available there because of the blockade. If you go and look up the statistics of the people injured and killed during the Great March of the Return this year it will frighten the crap out of you. If you've been following Ackley for more than a year or so, you would have noticed that last year there was a team of a kids soccer team from the Gaza Strip in the gym at Ackley. They were doing a tour around Ireland and they were from a soccer academy for soccer academy for kids in Gaza. And they were doing this tour where you were going around playing different teams. So they started off playing in Manor Hamilton and then I think they were in uh, Galway and Dublin and then they ended up down in Cork and I heard they were playing a match in the Mardex so I went up and started speaking to them and vi- invited them to come down to the gym after the match if they wanted to do a bit of training there and do something different and it was class they just cut loose for a full hour in the gym just swinging on the gymnastics rings and we had control of them for about 10 minutes and then they wanted to do their own thing so we just let them off the same team were due to come back this year and do their trip again but a lot of the kids weren't actually allowed out of Gaza which is one of the main reasons that they didn't come back to Ireland this year so hopefully we'll see them back here again next year. Between the time they came and when I I went out to Palestine the first time we did a good bit of fundraising for them and were able to give them a few thousand euro when I went over there in March so hopefully we'll see them back again. Now the West Bank is home to 2.7 million people and is divided into three areas A, B and C. Area A is exclusively run by the Palestinian Authority. Area B is under the control of the Palestinian Authority and Israel together. And Area C are the places within the West Bank that have settlements and that's under the control of Israel. So you have the Oslo Accords that led on to that A, B and C thing, which brought brought us up to the turn of the century. And on December, September, sorry, in 2000, um, the second Intifada began when the, who was then the, op- the opposition leader, but he later became the prime minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, went with a heavy guard of Israeli soldiers and cops and walked into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which Muslims believe to be the third most holiest place in the whole of Islam. So fighting broke out between the Palestinians defending Al-Aqsa and the security forces Garden Sharon and then seven Palestinians were killed in that fight and then after that the second intifada began. Even though the second intifada started at the mosque it was the result of a massive build-up and an expression of frustration and disappointment over the disrespect and daily denial of basic rights for Palestinians caused by the Israeli occupation and a lot of that is down to the fact that the Oslo Accords didn't meet the expectations that the Palestinians first had. Some of the main issues that are affecting Palestinians today and making life very difficult for them under Israeli rule are the total blockade of the Gaza Strip. There's little to no resources coming in or out and it's basically like an open air prison as I was saying earlier on. The fact that the Israeli government are going ahead with illegal settlement, settlements left, left, right and centre, what they're doing is building settlements and expanding them and then starting a little outpost a good bit away from the initial settlement. settlement and an outpost is just like 
someone who goes there and says, right, I'm going to live here. And then the Israelis have to build resources like water and electricity and provide an armed guard for that outpost. And then they link the outpost to the main settlement with a road and then try and fill in, fill in the gaps. That's happening all over Palestine and it's a big problem. Another major issue is the fact that Israel are using natural resources as a weapon against the Palestinian people now. One of the things that I wasn't aware of is the fact that the Israelis control all the water, the running water resources in Palestine and decide when to turn the water on and off. Now, I've had direct experience of this in um, the Ada refugee camp and we heard from uh, a guy who was in the Balada refugee camp, which is the biggest refugee camp in the West Bank, that in their camp, the Israelis only turn the running water on for 24 hours out of every five days. So that's one day out of five where they have running water in the house. All Palestinian homes, when you're driving around, will have black water uh, tanks on top of the houses, and that's to store water whenever the water does start running and then they have to be very careful with it because they know it may be a while before it comes again. The detention of children, which is an ongoing thing for Palestinians, is a major issue. The rate of return of the Palestinian refugees is another another major issue because obviously they should have a right to go back to the place where they're from, but Israel aren't granting them that rate of return. And there's a massive issue with freedom of movement in Palestine, which is why the that um the Palestine Marathon was started to highlight the fact that they couldn't move freely. And a big part of this um, lack of freedom of movement, aside from checkpoints everywhere and having to drive registered car cars with certain registrations so that people know that they're Palestinians driving the car and there's, certain, there's a lot of roads that the Palestinian cars can't go on, that they're only for Israeli cars. But also they have this insane permit system where basically Palestinians have to have a permit for everything. I think there's over 50 different types of permits. You have to have a permit if you want to go, say, to work. If you want to go to a certain part of land, you have to have a permit. If you want to carry tools, you have to have a permit. You have to have a permit to go certain places. It's insane and it's really making life very difficult for the Palestinians. But at the same time, the Palestinians keep on going and keep on making a living and they're kind of... Uh, Existing to resist. I've heard that term used a couple of times as well. Being in a situation where you feel like you don't have a voice or you're basically invisible resonates with me quite a bit because of growing up in Belfast during the 90s. I remember whenever I was in first or second year of secondary school in Mount on the Falls Road at a time when our school wasn't recognised by the government because of the fact that it was the, the education was being taught through the medium of Irish. They believed that it was impossible to get a good education through Irish and that and we didn't have any government funding at the time. And it was still during a time where Catholics were being very heavily discriminated against. And the peace process, of course, wasn't really properly established at that time. But I remember there were visitors coming to our school every so often from America or um, from different countries all around the world. And they would just come into the class and stand there and talk to us. And at the time, I was wondering, why are the, our teachers bringing people in from outside from America into our classrooms and why are Americans even interested in coming into you know, like the classroom of a first year classroom of a little school on the Falls Road but I realise now that it was a really important thing to happen because now I realise that they were coming in to show us their support to tell us that we weren't invisible and to hear our stories and to be able to share our stories with other people and that I think in the long run had a very positive impact on my life so I'm glad to be able to return the favour in, in a very small way to um, the Palestinians who are often not given a chance to speak to, for themselves 
And I really want to start the podcast with the story of Aisar, who I met at the Dehesha refugee camp. He's a volunteer at the community centre that serves the camp, which is called the Lilac Centre. And this is an absolutely class organisation that gives the kids at the camp opportunities to take part in cultural things like music, dance, uh, singing, theatre and sport, and also get counselling for the trauma that's very widespread in the camps and under Israeli occupation. The Dehesha camp is the second biggest camp in the West Bank, and it was established on the back of the Nakba in 1949, and it's home to over 15,000 refugees on a 1.5 square kilometre plot of land. The camp is raided nearly weekly by the Israeli army, who use regular violence against the residents. Recently, the new commander of the Israeli army at the camp, known as Captain Nadal, told the people that he would cripple half of them and let the other half push the wheelchairs. The ongoing strategy is to shoot people in the left knee to do as much damage as possible, to maim them and also make them dependent on their family and friends for care and to make them a financial burden as well. The Dehesha camp faces all the same problems that the rest of the refugee camps in the West Bank face in terms of water, health, education, freedom of movement and general quality of life. And this makes the work that ISAR and the Lilac Centre are doing even more important. So I think that's a nice wee background on Palestine and the talk that we're about to hear from Acer about his life growing up in the camp and being in school and the work that he does at the Lilac Centre. So let's just get stuck into the talk. The one thing that kept going through my head whenever I was listening to this talk first was Bobby Sands' quote of our revenge will be the laughter of our children and they certainly have the same attitude out there that the kids and the next generation are the people that need to be given hope, given vision and given like the chance to make a better future for themselves so I thought this was a very inspirational talk I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you and to also getting a bit of feedback afterwards whenever you get the chance to listen to it so enjoy the talk at the beginning my name is Aysar I'm 29 years old I have studied at Unorwa school and I grew up and raised in this camp uh, what I was writing mainly about when I was 13 years old uh, during that time, or in that year, it was too much uh, student, uh, and there were not enough places in our Onorwa uh, school here in Dehesha. And during that time, our school decided to open a different section, another rooms, <clears throat> but because of the poverty that we live here in, in Dehesha and the lack of the materials and, you know, Onorwa. Our school here, they made uh, our classes from metal and wood. And mainly they took, like, a just piece from the main square where normally uh, in the middle of the lectures, normally we go to play, you know, I don't know what we call it in English, but the area where we uh, play football at the school. And when I was writing it, just I remember how much it was a little bit strange because during that time, one of my uh, teacher he was giving us the Arabic and literature. Uh, he asked me to, or he asked like our section to write uh, an article about about the Haitian. I was, during that time, 13, 14 years old. Uh, I don't remember how the time is passed. And I don't remember the teacher that he asked me, okay, like, stand up and to read what I wrote, because I didn't write anything during that time. Maybe that's why I decided to 
write again what I was dreaming in that time or what in that hour uh, what I was thinking about <clears throat> in my section we were 45 students uh, and you can imagine how much it was crowded we used to sit in wood desk 45 there were no place for even a breathe and you can try to imagine it was metal we call it zinc room metal room so what you will tell me what the story is about was maybe consisting of many things because mainly during this or these years that I spent in these classes we start building mainly or my generation we build our personality our definition our vision and what the meaning of the camp from these middle uh, classes I remember for example that it was not in it was not well known or we didn't know that normally there is four seasons like normally we have just two seasons or at least what I used to remember which is summer and winter this is the most season that I used to suffer in this uh, middle classes uh, and I used to remember exactly for example when my mom sent me to, to the school because this school normally was our life, our world we used to spend most of the time in these classes studying, trying to study and the rest which we used to run away in the camps of uh, in the alleys and the streets of the camps playing football probably or ringing the, the ring of the houses and just run. <laughs> but I still remember when I used to go each day from the house in the winter, how my mom, she used to let me wear everything that I have in my drawer. It doesn't matter what the color is and if it's suit or no, <clears throat> the most important thing is to be just protected from the winter. And maybe the funny thing that normally after I, she used to give me the, or wear the socks, she used to put always plastic bag and then the shoes and then another plastic bag <clears throat> so I will be protected also from the water uh, that normally in this middle class glasses <clears throat> after it rain the whole water it will be like under our feet and I remember <clears throat> how much it was like at the beginning really complicated we were not focused about what the teacher he was saying as much as like keep just trying to raise our feet over the, the land. At the beginning it was like really hard and it became like a game among just the friend who have been <coughs> chosen to live in this middle classes. And each day we used to make like more than that who would be like the champion of the middle class today who would be raising his feet all the day to be protected from, uh, from the water. And most of the time we lose because you know as soon as it rains more, the rain starts like going from also over us, and we were not able to to study or hear each other. Or for us, it was like maybe a moment of like uh, imagining and just travel in our mentality. Because also even our books, when it was raining, you know, the the the, the word it was like losing the paper, it was like damaged. So for us it was like a moment, or probably today I can say that it was a moment of building our imagination. 
the same as maybe the summer. But you can imagine how you would, could live in a really warm place. There were maybe just two windows. And I still remember, for example, the teacher, while he was like just each moment and then just go out and we were not able to go out. We have to stay all the day in the class, like listening to the teacher. And maybe not listening to the teacher as much as building also <coughs> our first dream of seeing and going to the sea. Which I'm sure you hear many Palestinians, they never also see the sea till nowadays. But I remember, for example, in that summer, I started like, thinking what sea could be, because also we were forbidden to see it. But it was like in our dreams and uh, uh, imagination. We were 45 students who survived from us. I mean, not survived from the middle classes, but who survived in living in the camp. <coughs> Most of them, <coughs> sorry, they became teachers. They became doctors, architecture, uh, musicians, writers. And maybe here I would like also to take you to the part that when we talk about refugee camps, uh, it doesn't mean like suffering and uh, poverty or marginalized people. <coughs> because despite of all of that, <coughs> we were able to dream. We were able to to build the dreams that we were thinking about during the time. Uh, we were able to change ourselves from weak to strong people, from victim to center and important people in this community. That's why maybe I used to make a lot of tours for international, and it was a bit hard for me each time seeing in their eyes how I look like because it was the same as when I was a child in that middle classes, seeing myself without future, you know, uh, lost, victims. But when I look again today to the camp <clears throat> and what those 45, and I'm talking about like my just middle class, what they were able to accomplish, it was not just their personal accomplish. More than that, you were able to change many international theories that you study and I study. These theories, social theories that always said wherever there is small geographic area, high level of poverty, no law, normally the result have to be crimes, drugs, na, 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 na. Maybe since the camp was established <coughs> till nowadays, we never register like the crimes. Uh, the camp were able, or we were able in this camp to create something from nothing and be able to continue dreaming and maybe this is the proud that I was maybe writing about it in, uh, in the story now despite that some of our section were get killed maybe by Israeli through the way and while you are traveling even in different places it became natural thing and what natural thing? Like, how could be natural thing someone could die? How natural thing to live like a situation like that? Uh, I don't know. Probably the condition pushes us to be like that. But the same as pushes us to be a dreamer. Uh, pushes us to create again, like something from nothing is to continue. Uh, what we build when we were like in that middle class.
that's why you see many associations. That's why you are seeing, despite of everything, people still smiling and laughing. It doesn't make a sense too. Uh, but at the same time, it's really complicated <coughs> and not easy to talk about these stories, uh, to share like these stories, especially with international friends and supporters, and maybe people who's maybe they never hear about Palestine, because there will be like two way. The first way I have to symbolize these stories, not just the middle classes, but I'm talking about like many things that I'm sure you hear, and maybe the tour could share you some. It's not easy to symbolize it, so you will, others will be able to to, to understand it and uh, and she, like feel it, because like symbolize it like we lose the valuable of the story itself. At the same time. When we share, like normally, what the story could be and the real story, it could be like a, like a film or like a abnormal thing or not logic. Like how come, how come people they die in the jail and their body still in the jail till nowadays? Uh, how come, like you know, kids 15, 15, 16 years old, they are going to the school, continue building their dreams, their dream, like the dream that I did, and in the way that he will be get shot because. Israeli really, was like just having activities <coughs> in that moment, in that place. And the problem that would be easier for Israeli to say that we are liar and to deny what we are saying because what we are saying it's not, not, not normal, like it's not logic. And then we will be like in front of two solutions <coughs> to give up. And Israeli will be the people who benefit from that. Give up not because we are weak. Because also we were not able to analyze our ourselves, to understand ourselves, and understand how we can like share these stories. Because at the end we will be like Arab Muslims, I don't know what, which have to be bombed after that. You know, this is mainly in Europe or in US. So this is the first option, and maybe the second option that we will start changing ourselves to be the subject and the object. To be the one who get killed and the one who have to talk about his story because there is no options uh, more than that and to be a subject and object it's not easy too and I'm telling you about even <coughs> simple stories that I was writing like 20 minutes ago and it was just take me like to that memories and I'm seeing myself who I am nowadays, which I'm proud of myself. I'm a writer now and doing all the dreams that I was doing. I didn't write that article during that time, but I were able now to publish four books and continue my, my way. But at the same time, I know how much like it's really, it's really hard. Not writing, but as much as trying to find a way to tell the stories, which I know you will try as much as you can to understand. But will be like sometimes really hard to feel the same things. What's Lailak? Maybe to jump and not spend more time. Lailak, it's a place, like the rest of the association that you met. Uh, a place where we can collect the kids and let them dream. Try to find like better places than the Zinco or the metal classes during that time. And let them also uh, 
dreams do what they like to do. Try a bit as much as we can to let them avoid what we did during that hour time, during that time, or during that process that you have to grow up in refugee camp. So there is a tax you have to pay. Being a refugee, get arrested, get shot. I don't know. Participating in political thing that you don't like, but you you know you suppose that you part you have to participate on it because at the end it's your life. Your life has to be mixed with many things, studies, dreams. I don't know love stories. All it's mixed together. That's why. Like we are full of psychological problem. For you, we look like a really wow educator and speaker and active people and smart. But yes, in some way, yes. But in the other point, no. We are full of psychological problem that we were we are not able to pass it. Or maybe the problem that we didn't even notice what is it till we live other experience, experience like your country by going outside and show it from the. Reality, how it is. Sometimes we'll be more strong to be back and try to change, and sometimes we'll be stuck in the middle, in between. And this is maybe my new novel that I'm writing about in between, and mainly I'm talking about also personal story, uh, which it is. I'm sure you will hear more. It's about a girl that I met, and we are in a relation since five years. I'm not able to travel in Italy, and she's not able to enter Palestine. She's denied, and I'm denied, and we are trying to build a life. And maybe also part of my resistance started like from simple thing, from a dream of sea that I told you I dream of it during that time, and I was not able till nowadays to go to Haifa or Yafa for you. So everything is not logic. For you, you travel maybe from Europe, it takes you three hours and a half normally by plane. For us, it takes us two days. You know, your country, Italy or France, more close to us than Haifa and Yafa, which I never saw it. Your country is close to me than here because I will pass two days to Jordan and then I will travel three hours and a half and I will be there. So time is different, geography is different, and we have to live the situation. We have to grow up in the situation and try to again like finding any space, any moment which we also try to fix ourselves. In the same time, transfer this experience to the young generation and try to show them like additional ways. But also, we are not able to let them do these ways because they have to do it by themselves. And while they are thinking, many people fail, like the leaf of the trees in in autumn. What I'm doing at Lilac, I start like a project a couple of years ago. Which is just transfer these stories and try to create a new writer since I love and I found writing as a way to take off all my pain, all my stories, and try to create new writers, new young. They were amazing and full of energy, which remind me how my generation were during that time. And they give like amazing, like a uh, suggestion or activities. Like one of the activity, which it is maybe normal for you to make public uh, street libraries, simple. They made like from recycling wood to make library in the street, enhancing people to start reading. And I'm talking about like 14, 13, 14 kids. Uh, now we don't have them, like where you were in Ida or others especially I don't know what it is because they focus a lot about this age between 18 till 24. Most of them, they are in the jail. The last guy that I was in contact with, 
and I went to trip to Italy to make lecture and collect fund for their library. In the way, while I'm coming back, <coughs> Israeli enter his house, searching for him. He tried to run away because he promised me to wait, me to drink whiskey together after we will be back. He jumped from his window. In the way of his jumping, they shot him eight bullets, and they keep him bleeding till he died. And then they arrest his body, which I'm sure you hear the arresting of the bodies. So it makes you sometimes like bad because after that I didn't continue working with the kids. Maybe I keep like waiting the rest to come back from the jail. Because since I was commitment with them, I have to continue with them. But I know 100% the people that I will, I will meet, they are not the people that I was working with them before. Because they had now additional uh, experience that no one from us are able to define it or to help him to go out of it. He's the only one which he have to live this story, live the experience of the jails and try to find like his window to go out of, from it. But despite of that, like I'm not, don't feel that I'm uh, optimist, or I'm, uh, yeah, no. You know, I really believe about the young generation and they're powerful. But it make maybe us a bit tired that we are pushing them to the right way. And then each time the Israeli also they're pushing them to us in the back by arresting them, by killing them. We will feel tired and then will be additional duty for us to work with the same group to try to survive them and take them out of their own prison that they build, which consists of psychological problem or could be. But in general, we have many things at uh, Lailak. Uh, we have cultural, again, the art, the uh, literature group, we have theater, uh, music group, uh, kids, social, uh, social worker, which like a project that we had with the uh, uh, with some international and local uh, universities. That's the first part of the Palestinian recordings out there now. I kept it quite short this week as there was a lot of preparation in this episode and there is a lot of information to take in there for you as well. But hopefully you can follow up on some of the links that I've added into the show notes to learn some more. One thing that I would like to add to this episode is that Isar currently has a GoFundMe page to raise funds so that he can get his books translated into English to reach a broader audience and tell us stories from the camp. I put a few quid into the campaign this morning and I've added the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes as well if you want to go and do the same. Let me know what you thought about this episode and as usual, leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes if you're enjoying the podcast. Kajian Kedarala Kara, Kenya Fury.